0: <clears throat> My plan was for the second talk, of the second day, to be about uh, meditation technique, but um, there were so many heartfelt dialogues last night in the interviews that I thought I would try and ad- address uh, some of the questions that were coming up in the interviews, because there were some good ones. Yeah. Remember I said yesterday, you know your practice is working if deep questions emerge. um, First of all, Buddhism. The term Buddhism was coined in the 19th century by Western academics who were trying to give a name to Asian practices that had their roots connected to the historical Buddha. So it's a new Western term. In other words, the word Buddhism, up until a century ago, was foreign to Buddhist communities. Uh, Now we're stuck with it. Um, Is Buddhism a religion? Is Buddhism mindfulness? Is Buddhism a new kind of psychotherapy? Or a new wave of psychiatry? Um, I think the answer is no. Uh, Buddhism is a culture. And it's a culture of awakening. It's something that we do together. And um, it's something that can sensitize us. It's a process. With values and techniques, uh, or as Grant likes to say, technology. Um that uh, helps us transform our suffering, uh, sensitizes us uh, to the suffering of others, uh, motivates us to roll up our sleeves and go to work, and also helps us uh, flourish in the here and the now. And maybe that's the biggest difference between the culture of awakening that we practice, and the religion of Buddhism. Which is, uh, our focus is not what happens when we die. Our focus is on right now. And, maybe, that might influence what happens when we die. When Buddhism first came to the West, one of the most important scholars was a guy named Edward Kanzi. And he was famous for saying that Buddhism hasn't had a fresh idea in a thousand years. (laughs) Well, now we see that's changing a lot. But I really see this culture of awakening as a culture of healing also. Because all of us, our love is broken. Because all of us, our hearts are fractured. In the summertime, I uh, made friends uh, with a wonderful man named Caleb Ben. Caleb is an indigenous leader in um, uh, the West. And uh, he's a young man who inspires me a great deal. And uh, he told me that his grandmother got esophageal cancer. And so the traditional way of healing, esoph- healing uh, this kind of condition was to go get a moose. And uh, to skin its neck, uh, to kill the moose, they would eat the whole moose, and then skin uh, parts of its neck and use different uh, parts of the neck on the grandmother's neck in order to heal uh, her condition. And apparently it worked. So then he said something interesting, which is you can't pass down that kind of medicine as an idea you actually have to have the moose. And you actually have to have the land. So if the land is fractured, then we're fractured. And I think this is true in our hearts. So we're all uh, lovesick, a little broken in our hearts. So I, I sometimes think meditation practice is like an ambulance service for love. If you could have, like, intimacy paramedics, we would be them. (laughs) So, uh, I just want to begin by really bringing home this point that uh, we're involved in a culture of awakening. It's not an individual practice. Even though we all have our own individual work to do. Because all of us are fractured in different ways. We have healing to do. But still, uh, you can't do it separate from land, and you can't do it separate from other people. So when you're walking down the hall in this amazing building, uh, when you bow, Uh, try not to be me bowing to you. Do you know that feeling? You're walking, oh, there's that person, and then you bow to that person. You can also do this when you're eating. When you eat, everybody is sitting together. And when you're sitting next to someone while you're eating, try and soften the boundaries of your skin. And let yourself be touched by the other person that's uh, eating. There's still another person. When they eat, you're not going to get full. But you can let your heart fill up with the other person. Even though we're not looking at each other, we're still looking at each other. In the meditation hall when someone cries, that's you also. When someone's really anxious and you can feel your neighbor really anxious, that's you also. So just watch where we separate ourselves into these compartmentalized, uh, compulsive personalities, these identities. The word identity uh, etymologically comes from the word Uh, the same root originally it meant the same which is trying to keep something the same and our identity really suffers when we try and stay the same and the way we usually try and stay the same is by trying to not be connected to you So, uh, on your meditation cushion, it's really important that when thoughts and concepts and identity is arising and you're caught in it, come back to your breath again again and again and again and again and again. To just be really present. I hope you're working on this. When I was a young man, younger man, Um. I was really obsessed with concentration practice. So it was like, I thought if you just get really concentrated and don't have thoughts, you'll get enlightened. I remember trying so hard to concentrate that I would get migraine headaches that would last for days and days. Also um, when I practiced, it was optional, walking meditation was optional. Actually, no one ever said it's optional, but I just took it as optional, so I just kept sitting. And I remember one retreat, I got hemorrhoids. (laughs) But like, this is a young man's problem. So you should watch in your practice if you're trying to get somewhere. If you don't like the mind state you're in, and you're you're trying to use the situation you're in to get in a different mind state. I don't like this one, I want another one. There's a meditation teacher uh, who's a concentration teacher named Kenneth Folk and he he said, every meditation student comes with exactly the same question, how can I get what I want? (laughs) So watch for that in the practice. How can I just get what I want? The problem is, is when you get quieter, uh, you get visited by ghosts, by the past. And some fear can come up around that. Some resentment can come up around that. Maybe it's because you're aging, and when you look in the mirror, you don't have the same face that you did 20 years ago. Or maybe in yoga you can't do what Rose is doing. And then maybe you're a little bit angry because uh, you have an idea about what you could do. But things are changing. Sorry, Rose. So that's why I brought up the the neuroscience yesterday and I hope that that was a little bit helpful because um, we can see how we're biased in our perception towards the negative. And it doesn't mean you have to put positive things into your memory. What it means is just every time you're paying attention and you can stay with something for 10 seconds, which is a long time. Like, look out into the courtyard at the snow and just stay with it for ten seconds. It upends this tendency to go into the negative. I hope everyone sees that in a little bit. Uh, Yesterday someone's response to this was, uh, my first thought when you said uh, that thing about going to the negative was that it's probably not true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but repeated mental activity creates repeated neural circuitry. In other words, you can use your mind to change your brain. And so there has to be duration, right? It's just another way of talking about mindfulness practice. There has to be some duration, has to be some intensity, and it has to be embodied. Your whole body. Not just a mind up here. It's your whole body. But uh, what happens when, when um, <coughs> we start getting quiet is that our habits show up. Right? Has anybody seen this yet? our habits really show up. And sometimes they weren't the habits that you thought were going to show up on the retreat. So, uh, in Zen practice, our habits are thought of as spirits or ghosts. Nowadays, nobody believes in ghosts because we're like so scientific. But actually, there's a reason why everywhere you go in the world, there's some kind of religious ritual to deal with ghosts. Because it's a projection of our own ghosts. I used to not believe so much in ghosts, but now I live in the forest. And there's no lights. And so I've taken, a couple times a week, I go walking in the forest at night. Because as I was a kid, that was the scariest thing you could ever do. So now I do it. I started doing it with a headlamp. Now I don't use a headlamp at all. I just go walking at night in the woods. And... uh, if you don't think there are spirits, you should go walking in the woods at night. (laughs) So, um, when I'm practicing with you, uh, all of you, for the first few years, I feel like part of the practice is us just finding some trust together. And, um, Maybe to the point where I feel like things are strong enough that I can push you a little bit and you won't run away. Um, my, my teacher, Enkyo Roshi, told me that as soon as she starts pushing students, she loses half of them. So I have to give up on my side wanting you to like me. And you have to give up on your side Uh, needing me to see you a certain way so that we can do this work. And I think when that starts to happen, what begins to happen is that then um, you're on your own more and you can feel like the safety of our relationship and the safety of the community allows you to be more independent. Because to have a culture of awakening, you need very independent people But you need to trust something that's deeper than your personality. And until you come to practice, you're just trusting your personality all the time, which is why you're suffering, which is the tragedy that's bringing you onto the retreat. I remember Patabi Joyce used to say it's really good you're not born into a heaven realm, because it's very bad for your practice, because there's no problems. So, I feel like my job over time is then to just push you a little bit for you to be more independent, for you to turn around and start trusting you, and start practicing for you, and start practicing for community. So, I wanted to offer a koan, because that's always a fun thing to explore on retreat. Um, I won't give too much introduction about koans, uh, because many of you have, have heard me talk about them. There's a text called The Gateless Gate, where there are 48 koans. And a hundred koans in the Blue Cliff record, a hundred in the Book of Equanimity. There's these different collections with 50, 80, 100 different koans. And they're used as curriculum. Um, but there's also the koan of you sitting here right now breathing. There's just the koan of your life. Have you looked at that one? My my friend Trudy Goodman once told me a story where a famous Zen teacher came to Boston, or came to Cambridge, where she was living, and her job was to be the chauffeur. And so she was in the car all the time with this Zen teacher and didn't know what to talk about. So one day she just said to him, "What's the answer to the final koan?" <laughs> no, she said, "What is the final koan?" And he said, "I won't tell you the final koan, but I'll tell you the answer." <laughs> And she said, what's the answer? And he said, love. (laughs) Uh, Most people think koans are paradoxes. You heard this before? Koans are not paradoxes. Uh, Koans are paradoxes if you just come at them as thinking. If you think about them, they're paradoxes. Um, So what I wanted to share with you today is the shortest koan. And it doesn't come from any of those books. Actually, there's a whole other area of koans called miscellaneous koans that never fit in any columns. And this is the shortest koan. It has only three words in it. And it goes like this. Save a ghost. So being that it's the shortest koan, it must be the easiest koan. So this is... a something you can take into your heart, this teaching. What does it mean? Save a ghost. How many of you hear the ghosts whispering when you're sitting? That conflict that you still can't resolve? That breakup that you still don't understand? The person who you were close with who died, but it was too soon. The injuries in your body, this isn't how it was supposed to go. Or as I was talking about in my own life yesterday, your genetics that play out as symptoms. So these are all of our ghosts. trying to get a hold, somehow. So how do you save a ghost? Well, what does it mean to save something? How do you save something? You'll notice in the Bodhisattva chant that we chant, I changed the chant. Ten years ago, when I first started studying with uh, studying Zen, I said to Enkyo Roshi, I, I don't like the word save in the Bodhisattva chant, saving all sentient beings can it just be serve? You know? She said, Yeah, that's a great idea. She said, Just chant save for 10 years and then you can change it. <laughs> so, anyways, I'm changing it. <laughs> so, how do you save someone? You, s- you serve somebody. And how do you serve something? You get really close to it. So, how do you save a ghost? You have to serve the ghost. This is like the reverence I was talking about yesterday. Ghosts are ephemeral. They have no roots. They thrive on not having roots. And in the Japanese tradition, they have no teeth and no feet. A little like Casper. Maybe not so friendly. So how do you become one uh, with a ghost? When I think about this, I think about uh, Soto Zen temple I visited in Japan, where on the gate, when you walk in over top of the gate, it says, uh, do not enter unless you care about life and death. Imagine if we had that, like like when you go to the website or something, It says, like, do you care about life or death, yes or no, and then you can get in. (laughs) (laughs) Every time that you lose somebody in your life, um, all the other losses pile up, and they're right there. every time you have to walk away from somebody or a job, all the times you've been abandoned are right there. Every time you're about to kiss somebody, every time you've ever been in love, is right there And every time you walk into the Buddha hall, every time you go down to sit, all the other people who've meditated are also with you. So the thing about ghosts is they're not suited for graves. You can't bury them. And so you have to save them by respecting them, letting them be around. And what I hear in the interviews is ghosts coming up for people and wanting those ghosts just to be, oh, go away. And I feel like this is disrespectful. Don't you think this is disrespectful? The dead and our habits are deep inside us and they don't go away, they live on in us. Maybe all the dead live on in us. And as we mourn the dead, uh, the dead are alive in us making culture. And I think that this is um, the most tragic part of being a human, in some respects, is that we're tormented, not by the first five years of life, as psychologists tell us, but the last two million. And all the unlived lives of our parents and our grandparents that live on in us. So part of a culture of waking up is to live your life but you can only live your life if you're also constantly making peace with the ghosts. I'm talking a little bit about Japan in this building. It's hard not to think about Japan. Um, but you know, I, one of the things I found interesting about Japanese culture is they're not so into gods. They're really into the dead. They're really into, and you see this in Thailand also, in Burma, making peace with the dead making peace with our ancestors. It's partly why we chant this chant at night that Rose does so well. Sarah doesn't like leading chanting, so she's going to be taking over from Rose soon. (laughs) Our personality is mostly constructed by how we mourn. And I think that it would be more interesting, instead of using the word mindfulness, to use the term mourning. Because what mindfulness really is, at the bottom, is the ability to mourn. The ability to be intimate with what's happening in the present moment, and simultaneously to not hold on to it. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. Mm. To be intimate with what's happening in the present moment, to not be scared, to make contact with what's happening in the present moment, and at the same time, exactly the same time, to not hold on to it. Maybe it's mindfulness, but maybe it's grieving, actually. And we avoid it all the time. Let me give you some examples. A blank stare. Happens all the time in interviews. I say, how are you feeling right now? And then the person stares out the window. Changing the topic. Somebody's communicating with you, it starts to get near the ghosts, and you change the topic. Getting tired, getting sleepy. Does anybody have this? I get this a lot where somebody says, There's something I want to talk to you about, and I'm, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> And the last is, uh, I'm sure there's more, but these are just the ones that happened last night. Denying that your tears mean something. Oh, I'm just crying, but it doesn't mean anything. I think that's disrespectful to the ghosts also. They're trying to come alive in you. They're looking for a way to be alive. So the past wants to be remembered, so let's not turn the past into something bad, Allah la Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, we need to be present, but the past is encoded in the present, so let's have some respect for the past. It's part of who you are. Don't try and split that off. Humans are so good at splitting. I feel like this is the only territory the Buddha wasn't very good at articulating. Compartmentalization. We're so good at it. So in most schools of uh, spirituality, your ego is considered something really bad. You want to get rid of it. But when you think about it, that ego structure that is like so defensive in us, has so much pride, wants to get enlightened. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if when you got enlightened, you were like, oh, this is exactly how I thought it would be. That ego structure was created when you were a kid. It's created by our uh, families, our caregiving, mirroring, our culture. So when you see yourself being egoic, you shouldn't be so down about that. You should just see your ego as like a little kid. When you see a little kid, you don't think, oh God, they're a little kid. (laughs) Maybe some of you do. Like you don't criticize them for being a little kid because they're a little kid. So you shouldn't criticize your ego because it's just a little kid. Or maybe it's more like a little pet. (laughs) And you can have some compassion for your defensiveness. But what tends to happen is you go, I'm practicing, I wanna get what I want out of the practice, This is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I want to get out of it. You usually don't see all this. And then it starts to not work because like, you can kind of do that for a few years. But after a while, it just stops working. And then your ego flips to the opposite, which is fuck it. This is not the practice for me. Really, it's, you know, whatever. You fill in the blank. Zen archery. Blogging. Really, I'm just into blogging. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so what's going to happen over time is that when you're sitting the ghosts are going to show you where you're compulsive and where you're stiff and where this, these strategies in your personality are outdated it's going to show you this In Buddhist psychology, this is called a hell realm, actually. It's the ghosts that repeat in cycles. You know, structure that's stiff. And practice is going to point that out. And I'm going to point it out. And other people are going to point it out. And so it's really important that you don't judge it and you're not ashamed. Because it... It's an important place to be in, to be able to be vulnerable, existentially vulnerable, with other people. It's so good for us, and it's so hard for us, because our love is broken. And that's the way it's broken, defended against vulnerability. So maybe you come on this retreat thinking, Oh, I just want to go to the fourth jhana. I just want to get samadhi. Oh, well, I would be interested if you had samadhi with your vulnerability. I don't know if it's in the classical text, but let's say that there is a samadhi vulnerability. The vulnerability of samadhi. The samadhi of vulnerability. So, save a ghost. Doesn't it sound easy? Now we have a need to have a better democracy. We need to um, have more inspiring leaders, don't you think? We need to heal economic inequality. We need to do something about climate change. And I think that all of these things, from the perspective of the ghosts, are really wake up calls for us to become citizens and not individuals, what Robert Thurman calls individuals. Not individuals, but to be part of something greater. When 100,000 people go march in New York for climate justice, the march doesn't do anything. A march never does anything. But what it does for the people who are there is it makes you feel bigger. It makes you feel part of something bigger. And that inspires you to collaborate. See? So, I want to suggest that we need to do that also in this space. You're working on your own stuff. We all have ghosts. But it's because we all have ghosts that we should soften a little bit our skin and our attitude. When you lie down at night to go to bed, when you're breathing, maybe just feel yourself lying down with uh, other people in your room. I have a lot of dead bugs in my room from the summer. They were there in the summer, same place, on the (laughs) windowsill. If you know who's in the rooms next to you, maybe take them into your heart when you lie down, go to sleep. When you wake up tomorrow morning, maybe the first thing you can think of are the other people here. Not just what your body feels like. In the zendo when you bow, uh, have reverence for others and feel their reverence for you. Because you're valuable. One of the techniques I do sometimes with students, and maybe I've done this with you, is I get someone to close their eyes and I say, we're going to sit in silence for a minute and then I'm going to say something And I just want you to feel what happens in your body. So we both sit in silence, breathing. And then I'll say something. uh, Like something I sometimes like to say is, um, you're welcome here. And then usually either the person just breaks down or they're just like, I don't feel anything. So then we try another one. I'm interested in you, or I'm interested in what you're interested in, and then we can experiment how it's so hard sometimes to see that we all want this connection, and then we do all these tricks to defend against it. You no, know, I want to come on retreat and really just like open up, you know, and get calm, but like I don't like anybody. <laughs> <laughs> So it's really important that you're living your life. You've heard me say this before, but I really feel like the goal of practice is eccentricity. For you to really live your life. And that's the cool thing about koans. There's no stock answer. Most of us, when we get into practice, especially those of you that come out of yoga practice, we live in this world, or dance. <laughs> we live in this paradigm of right and wrong. There's a right way to practice, and there's a wrong way to practice. There's a right way to do this. There's a wrong way to do this. Oh, I'm doing. I bow right. I bow wrong. Right. Right. Wrong. Right. Wrong. That's not a healthy motivation. A healthy motivation is you want to do something out out of a kind of creative energy to be inspired. Perfectionism is when you want to do it for somebody else. It's not the same thing. Healthy ambition is inspired. Perfectionism is very concerned about what you look like. What was I saying? Perfectionism. What's that? About else. What's that? It's about somebody else. About somebody else. Oh, yeah. Eccentricity. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm replaying all the meetings last night. So, <clears throat> eccentricity means living your life. Your life. Nobody else can do this for you. And living your life means making peace with the ghosts. Having an ongoing relationship with the ghosts. Because they may or may not go away. Because they have a purpose, which is trying to make spiritual life in your life. The dead are always at work in you. Your habits are always at work in you they're not going to stop. It's like a tortoise lives in its shell that's made of all its dead cells. But even with all those dead cells, there's so much movement, so much beauty. So I'm going to suggest that every time you come back to your breath and every time you bow and every time you sit beside somebody at dinner and you just allow their eating to be part of your eating that you give the ghosts a peaceful home so they can be around without causing trouble so that they can live on in us but in a peaceful space. So I encourage you to meditate on this Say Save a ghost. Maybe if we ever build a temple, that will be what you walk under in the main gate.